every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Money Talk. This is Peter Lewis with your essential business and finance news from Hong Kong and across Asia. And thank you for making this program one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and also Singapore. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the headlines for Wednesday, the 26th of July. China has announced the replacement of Foreign Minister Qin Gang one month after he disappeared from public view. Mr. Qin had been seen as a close associate of President Xi Jinping. China's state news agency Xinhua said on Tuesday that the country's parliament, the National People's Congress, had removed Mr. Qin and replaced him with the country's most senior diplomat Wang Yi, his predecessor, as foreign minister. Legislators on Tuesday also voted to replace China's outgoing central bank chief Yi Gang, who has reached retirement age, with economist Pan Gongsheng, a former deputy at the People's Bank of China. Mr. Pan had already been named the Communist Party's secretary at the PBOC this month, putting him in one of the bank's two top slots. And his appointment marks the first time since 2018 that the two top positions at the PBOC, the Governor and Communist Party Secretary, have been held by the same person. U.S. consumer confidence has risen to its highest level since July 2021, supported by easing inflation and a robust labour market. The conference, board's, the conference board's Consumer Confidence Index increased to 117 in July, up from 110.1 in June, and that beat economists' expectations. The Expectations Index, based on consumers' short-term outlook for income, business and labour market conditions, improved to 88.3 from 80 in June, and that's well above the 80 level that historically signals a recession within the next year. In the latest update to its World Economic Outlook, the IMF has raised its 2023 global growth prediction by 0.2 percentage points to 3%, up from 2.8% at its April assessment. The IMF kept its 2024 growth forecast unchanged at 3%. In China, GDP is seen falling from 5.2% this year to 4.5% in 2024. The IMF said in its report, continued weakness in the Chinese real estate sector is weighing on investment, foreign demand remains weak, and rising and elevated youth unemployment at 20.8% in May indicates labour market weakness. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, founder of Financial Shield, and Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at UBP. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, vice chair of research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, which is where you'll find my daily newsletter with plenty more business and finance news and information from around Asia. on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average marked its longest winning streak in more than six years and the 12th consecutive session of gains ahead of the Fed's interest rate decision tomorrow. The Dow rose 27 points or 0.1% to 35,438. The S&P 500 added a third of a percent to 4,567. The S&P 500 has advanced 19% this year and is trading near its highest level since April 2022 as hopes grow for a soft landing in the US economy. 
The Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.6% to 14,145. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index soared 766 points, that's 4.1%, to 19,434. That's the biggest rally since March the 1st. However, despite Tuesday's rally, the Hang Seng is still down 1.8% for 2023 so far, making it one of the world's worst-performing equity markets this year. The tech index accelerated 6% higher, led by electric vehicle makers. Chinese EV maker Xpeng saw a 12.8% gain, while NIO climbed 10.3%. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, which tracks major Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong, was up 5.3%, so that's the most since November. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index surged 2.1% to 3,232, while the Shenzhen Composite Index was up 2.2%. Overseas investors purchased a net 19 billion yuan, that's about 2.7 billion US dollars of onshore stocks via the trading links with Hong Kong. That's the biggest daily inflow since December 2021. And turnover in Shanghai and Shenzhen was also the highest in three weeks. The rebound was led by property stocks. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index surged over 14%. And this morning, futures markets are pointing to a loss of 150 points, or half a percent, for the Hang Seng at the open. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Wednesday morning, let's welcome our guests. We have with us our regular Wednesday commentator, founder of Financial Shield, Enzio von Fahl. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Morning to you, Carlos. Good morning. Well, as you heard there, shares in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Shenzhen soared yesterday after the Politburo signalled more support for the real estate sector alongside pledges to boost consumption and ease local government debt. Beijing's top decision-making body also vowed to elevate stable employment as a strategic goal. And a readout of the meeting published Monday by the official Xinhua News Agency said the 24-member Politburo believed that the economic recovery was making tortuous progress and it was necessary to actively expand domestic demand and expand consumption by increasing residents' income. President Xi Jinping's mantra, housing is for living in, not for speculation, was deleted from the latest statements for the first time since 2019. Instead, policymakers said they wanted to adjust property policies based on the local property market situation to better cope with the new developments related to the demand and supply of the property market. So what I want to do, Enzio and Carlos, is in a moment dig a little bit into the weeds and find out Mm. what this actually means in practice. But first of all, let let me just get your overall assessment of what the Politburo has done and said, because this has been long awaited for some sort of signal from the Politburo, some some form of stimulus. What do you make of it? Um, Honestly, there's been a deluge of policy announcements for the past weeks, um, culminating with the uh, release of the statement at the July Politburo. That is always a meeting where they take stock of the economic performance in the first half and then they recalibrate their uh, policies for the second half. Um, so we have been sort of anticipating this meeting for quite a few months as we have been monitoring the sequential deceleration in the Chinese economy for quite a few months. Um, they admitted that, um, you know, the, the things are not looking very good on the economic front. Torturous um, was the word, <laughs> wasn't it? Never heard them use that word um, before. I, I think the tone could have been a little 
little more realistic. Um, so there was a lot of uh, self-congratulating as well at the beginning of the statement. Um, but at least they have admitted that they, they have a situation that needs to be dealt with. Um, and sort of the areas that they're trying to um, support are no surprise, you know, with consumption, um, EVs, um, and also having to deal with the situation uh, in the real estate market. Um, I think when it gets interesting is when you sort of extrapolate potential implications of specific uh, uh, details, but we'll get into We're the We're going to get on to that. Yeah, yeah. Let um, me ask you, did you hear anything or see anything new that you haven't seen before or heard before from the Politburo in this statement? There were three things that I would highlight. Um, first of all is the exclusion of uh, President Xi's mantra that houses are to live and not to speculate in. Um, that has been in place since 2016, and of course we've seen a very sharp correction in housing prices since then, especially in Tier 1 cities. Now, we'll get into the weeds of what that means for the equity market in a minute, but that was one of the points. The second mm -hmm. point is that they are now thinking um, of the housing sector um, in terms of there being imbalances, uh, supply-demand imbalances that differ from region to region, so that's a structural shift. Um, and the third is that they did include for the first time a point on um, the equilibrium level of the UN. So the PBOC has been making statements, with, but that was a first for um, the Politburo. And Zia, what are your thoughts? Well, I think this is a cross between the mouse that roared and Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. What I mean by that is that I think that these, we'll get into the weeds in a little bit, but I think there's a lot of talk um, a lot of sort of big picture stuff going on here. And Carlos has pointed out three specific points, but um, that we'll have to discuss the efficacy of it in a moment. But I think they're also kind of trying to hype up something that um, a little bit like the IMF that is just not really deciding to move again because of, of my mantra, which is that, as, as the South China Morning Post pointed out yesterday, that the lead op-ed, that until they stop badgering the private sector, until they start allowing the private sector to recreate jobs and thus investments, um, this economy is going to slow down. Do you, do you think there's still a gap, NGO, between what they're saying and policies that are actually implemented? Because that's the thing the markets, investors have been worried about. There's well, a lot of talk, but where's the action? Yeah, I think the, I think there's a lot of talk and less action because a, a, a camel is a horse designed by committee. <laughs> and so there's really sort of, because they all have to have this consensus bit, nothing really comes out of it. It's, it's worse than the Fed policy committees. Mm. The, the, from an investment perspective, I mean, investors, as you mentioned, Carlos, have been waiting for this Politburo meeting for a long time. It's been well flagged mm. in advance. What we haven't seen from it is there's really no big bang stimulus, is there? They're, they're not rolling out the big bazookas here. No, so we saw a very positive reaction to the market yesterday. As you've mentioned, a lot of that upside was driven by real estate names. Um, and typically what would happen in this sort of context is they announce support measures for a specific sector and you can expect that earnings are going to recover sharply in the, in the quarters ahead. Um, but we are dealing with a very different situation for the housing sector. And there's admittedly now been a structural shift in conditions. Um, so I think in order to prove that rally um, with real estate stocks are sustainable going forwards, we need to see uh, better financial performance. And, and I'm afraid we might not get that. What we might get is a, 
a slightly less negative outlook in terms of uh, potential defaults for smaller local real estate companies. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a whole restructuring that still needs to take place. And that is something that investors were not thinking about yesterday when they were piling into the sector. Yeah, a lot of short covering yesterday. Mm, so absolutely. it remains to be yes, seen if that's going to continue. Good point, yes. All right, let, let's dig into this a bit more because what, what I want to try and find out is what, what does this actually mean in practice? What's going to happen? What's going to change? So let, let's start with the property market. As you mentioned, um, Carlos, one of the most notable things was the dropping of this phrase, which President Xi has had in this statement for several years now, every Politburo statement, houses are for living in, not for speculation. That has been dropped now uh, from the, the statements, and instead they've replaced it with this. They say the government must adapt to the new situation in which the dynamic of supply and demand in the property market is changing significantly. So what do you think this means in, in practice? What are they going to do that's different to try and stabilize the property market? I think that in practice that means that we are going to be looking at a new macroprudential framework. Um, they are going to do easing uh, in terms of macroprudential rules, meaning it will be easier for first-time homeowners to access housing with a lower down payment. Um, and they will also uh, lift the restrictions on home ownership in some tier one cities. Um, we all know that after she came up with that sentence, the divorce rate in Shanghai increased uh, <laughs> exponentially <laughs> because you can only have two houses per household. And so if you divorce, you can have four houses. Um, so we are going to see a, a, a change in that macroprudential framework, um, hopefully to support demand. But it will be up to local governments to decide. So this is going to be done now on an area by area, region yeah. by region um, basis. And, and local governments can decide if they want to to, uh, to lift some of these restrictions on, on home purchases, make it easier for people to buy houses. Correct. And is this going to stabilize the property market? It's a... It's a multi-billion dollar question. <laughs> um, I think it's um, a step in the right direction. Um, of course, in some areas, the supply-demand imbalance is very difficult to, to address. Uh, I, have no, uh, I have no question that in cities like Shanghai, it will not be an issue. Mm. Um, demand, um, especially if they do things mm. on the immigration front, uh, will, will always be high. But there are going to be second-tier cities where most of the pressures are concentrated right now, where that demand-supply imbalance is just not possible to, to address in the short term. And so in those areas, we are going to see a little bit more uh, of a credit cycle take take place, and then how local governments um, support or manage the the defaults is is mm -hmm. something that we have to st still wait and see. Because that, that's the thing, Enzio, that's not really yeah. mentioned here, is it? What is the new financing model for um, property developers that's going to replace the old one? Because the old one doesn't work anymore; it, it's it's bust. Well, they want to subsidise as we all know, but I wanted to just step back one and go back to what Carlos always refers to very eloquently as a structural issue. It's the structural leadership at a local level, which is totally arbitrary from my reading of, of Chinese policy. So it's fine and good even for Beijing to say something, but how it really pervades into the local government economies, that's something very, very different. Um, the grassroots pervasiveness of this policy change or this policy thrust I think is going to be much tougher to implement because you're te dealing with millions of people, millions of officials, thousands of cities. Mm -hmm. 
So what it really needs is to let the local governments loose to make their own decisions, doesn't it, based on local officials who know what's going on in their area, which Beijing has always been reluctant to, to do. To Even more importantly, to let the local economy, the local demand supply situation take hold, because why should a government official who's never really worked in business know more about what's going on in the demand supply equation than the actual guy who's building houses and who's selling houses? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the second thing that, that was prominent in this statement was about tackling local government debt, another big um, issue. The Politburo mm-hmm. statement said the meeting urged, also urged diffusing local government des- des- uh, debt risks with a package of plans. And it sort of hinted at some structural reforms um, to, to fix local government debt through a package of, of debt resolution plans. But of course, once again, a lack of details there, isn't there? And also a costing as to, you know, mm-hmm. some figures as to how much this is all going to cost well of course there were no figures announced through the whole, <laughs> the, the whole month of, of july so we we don't have specifics to go by um they did acknowledge the problem around local government debt and that of course alludes to the situation with um local government financing vehicles and um some of them being in in, in distress regarding their um their, their debt payment obligations um i think where they are potentially heading to is um uh, f- fiscal transfers from the central government. So they did talk a lot about um, the rural towns or shanty town renovation programs, um, and that is of course uh, out of the old playbook. So mm. they've done similar things um, in 2016 and 2018 um, with a pledge supplementary lending program and the shanty town renovation um, schemes uh, that that ran, uh, I think, from 2012 to 2018. Um, so they are re- recycling that. That means that uh, central fiscal transfers might take place and these funds will be utilized um, to basically improve the conditions around uh, these types of uh, uh, settlements in, in, in big cities. Um, so that is one way that the central government can, can help. Um, but of course, I think there will also be a discussion about central versus local government um, dynamics when it comes to leveraging some of the local assets. So one of the provinces that is under a lot of pressure is Guizhou, but of course they have the most valuable company in the country in that province. Mm. Um, that is something where frictions can still emerge, and, and we still don't know how that's going to pan out. Again, I think it's it's this my concern as an ex Hayek student of the the dirigiste economy, what they want that they insist on maintaining. And you can't really then run a proper, you can run a bailout system, um, which indeed also the U.S. has done many a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't run a, a rejuvenation system if you're still basing it on what one local official, one government official mm-hmm. thinks is going to happen to the property market because these people just cannot be correct consistently. So it's, it's going to rely on local banks, state banks, policy banks to really sort of resolve some of these debt, debt risks at, at the local government level. Then it sounds like, you know, this is going to be done province by province. Province by province, bailout by bailout. Yeah, I think that's because I'm not seeing any um, any inherent sol- market solutions coming into this. I'm seeing an awful lot of state mm-hmm. coming in and saying, we know what's best. Now we're going to bail you out because it's been going a little bit kooky before. Mm, so this is still going to be a, a state solution rather yes, than a market-based uh, solution. Yeah. Okay. Now, the next thing, the third thing, employment. The uh, the Politburo statement said it's necessary to increase the protection of people's livelihood and raise the issue of stabilizing employment 
sort of strategic heights. Now, as we know, youth unemployment uh, hit 21.3% in June. That's the highest since uh, the uh, National Bureau of Statistics began uh, publishing that data series um, back in 2018. But once again, I didn't see anything, unless I missed it, about what exactly is it going to do uh, to reduce um, unemployment. But, but Carlos, am, am I wrong there? I... I didn't even talk about employment in my report because the statement was so weak regarding employment, despite this being the big mm. elephant in the room. Mm. Um, yes, it would be great to safeguard people's livelihoods and increase wages. Um, but in fact, the government is doing the opposite. The government has been cutting wages um, throughout uh, all of its bureaucracy and uh, state-owned enterprises are doing the same. Maybe pr Many private companies are also doing the same. Um, so I don't see how they can mandate... Um, uh, the private sector to increase wages when they are they are not doing it themselves. Um, so I, I would say that the the crux um, of the matter for the employment will be boosting the private sector. Um, the private sector, as I think Encio will will talk about in a minute, accounts yeah. for a, a, a large chunk. Um, Ninety percent of, of employment. Yeah, exactly. Of investment. Yeah. One hundred percent. So what they need to do is give private um, entrepreneurs um, the confidence that they are lacking to hire people. And it's it's more specifically it's it's not just the the it's the confidence, but very much based on the stability of the framework in which they're allowed to dance. Mm. Because they keep on shifting the goalposts, but like your speakers, Peter here, if they keep on shifting, well then the quality goes down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but the, the Politburo, the State Council, they have said now that private companies are going to be treated the same as state-owned enterprises. I'm not sure that's a good or a bad thing to be treated like a state-owned enterprise, but they seem to be going all out to try and emphasize that, you know, private companies are, are a priority, they're a big part of the mm. economy and they want to support them. Can they really treat private companies the same as state-owned enterprises do you well, see that answer happening? me a question who's they because again if we get to the if we get to the beijing level it might be more coherent than at the local government official level because the, if the local government official has been the pasha over the past 10 20 years then why should he or for like perhaps even she decide to now give in to some smelly private sector entrepreneur who wants to actually get things going mm. and so again i would it depends on it hinges on this very simple question who are they and how again the the pervasiveness of the policy implementation the, the problem is for graduates is that a lot of the jobs mm. that they would traditionally go into have been destroyed, like, you know, online private education, yes. which just wiped out overnight, the crackdown on the tech sector, which employed a lot of graduates, that, that's been shrunk uh, quite considerably. So what, where are these jobs going to come from to, to replace those that have been lost so that graduates have got some opportunities? Well, a few weeks ago, we, we talked about the gig economy in China, which is apparently creating employment for some 200 million youngsters. But the problem with the gig economy is that it's hand-to-mouth. It's a bit mm. like the hairdressers and the um, cosmetic people in, in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood. So that's not really happening. We've got 12, 11.48 million or 12 million graduates entering the market this year. And again, if the educational system is not geared, the supply of the education is not geared to the demand for jobs, well, then you're, again, not going to go anywhere. So these are very fundamental issues that go beyond blasé, well, let's help the private sector. Mm, okay. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, it's been also been well flagged, they want to get people to spend 
lot of focus in this statement and in previous ones as well on consumer spending to the point which which amuses me slightly that they're almost dictating what it is they want you to buy. They'd like you to buy mm-hmm. furniture, please, some household electronics, maybe go out and join a sports club. Um, does it work like that? Does the economy really, really work like that when you sort of mandate from the top, you know, please go out and buy these things, but not necessarily providing any more money for people to go and do it? Well, that's not necessarily true. They, they are doing... Um Fiscal uh, support measures, for example, with cars, they've announced a, a program to reduce um, the, the tax on, on vehicles, and it's quite meaningful. I think um, it is um, 100,000 renminbi until 2025 for EVs, and then 50,000 until 2027. Um, if you sort of extrapolate those numbers um, um, with the sort of a number of EVs that was were sold in 2022, we are looking at a, at a support program of around 0.1% of GDP, which is a lot higher than whatever the US is doing to, to boost EV demand. So they do have an impact uh, in the short term. The problem is you create these bubbles of high demand for certain types of goods. And these are all large ticket items that weigh a lot in the consumer basket. And as soon as the support for those programs um, uh, stops, if you don't have a, a healthy economy where the, the 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 structural change that was meant to happen has already happened, then all your consumption plummets because of the base effect with the high high demand in the previous years. So it's um, in Spain there's a saying that goes: you have uh, bread today and hunger tomorrow. It's a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to see good performance for EVs. We are already seeing very bloated valuations for some of these companies. Uh, but what happens in you know what happens after 2025? It's like pumping tires with small holes in them. You keep on sort of pumping it, stands up for a while, but then it get, fizzles out again. Yeah, it, it seems the main theme here or the thing that Beijing is trying to do is that they want to try and get the recovery on track. But do it without too much stimulus. That, that seems to be what's behind all of this, isn't it? Which is why we have a lot of sort of confidence boosting measures, but, you know, not really on the margins, an awful lot of extra stimulus for the economy. Well, again, and I, it comes back to this, my very, very fundamental thing that I keep on gr- grating on about, which is that until they allow the until they really welcome and embrace the private sector stimulus stimuli themselves won't happen. I mean, mm. and just won't be effective. We had the same thing with the with the boost in, in the FDR back in the 30s. At least you had a private sector economy that could then take the ball and run with it. But if it's just a one-way job of the government pumping the tire, or in Carlos's diction, feeding the people for one day in Spain, then um, it just it, it's not sustainable, as you said. Okay, let's switch topics, talk about the central banks, because we've got three important meetings going on. The Fed has started its two day meeting. The European Central Bank meets tomorrow, the Bank of Japan um, on Friday. Um, Start with the Fed. I think we all know, don't we, what they're going to do. They're going to raise interest rates by 25 basis points. But what we want to hear is, is this the last one? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, of course, the um, futures market is pricing in a 96% chance that this is going to happen. If it doesn't happen, it's going to be a very be a massive shock. Yeah. Yeah. They've been consistently wrong, actually. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, but, but going by that probability, we do think that they're going to do one last 25 basis point rate uh, hike. We are seeing signs that uh, at least headline inflation is going down. And of course, uh, weakness in the Chinese economy is, is tremendously helping um, the Fed in this case because China is exporting deflation and not creating commodity um, inflation in the process. Um, so that is helping with headline numbers. Um, 
we think that uh, although the Fed is likely going to keep um, it open for September, um, if um, the inflationary trends continue to be like uh, what we've seen in the past uh, month, that they will most likely choose to pause and then they will keep rates um, higher for much longer. And that's, that's where our house yeah. view is a little bit different to the market view where they're expecting cuts in, 20, mm. in, in, in end of 2023 or early 2024. Uh, we think that they, they are actually willing to accept some contraction in aggregate demand, meaning a, a technical recession, um, and that they wouldn't, they wouldn't cut rates as a result of that. Um, so it will take a lot of economic pain in order for them to reverse course in the short term. I agree with Carlos, if I may just interrupt there, Peter. Um, I think the the key inflation that that we always watch is the core, this mouthful, the core personal consumption expenditures price index. Mm. 4.6%. Yes, and that's still way, way above the 2% target of the Fed. So just to the listeners, don't just go with the CPI number. It's actually this mouthful, this core personal consumption price index. That's the one that really counts. I also agree with Carlos that I think they'll keep them elevated at a longer rate, but I also think that they may just leave themselves a policy option to increase by another 25 basis points in case this core personal thing doesn't come down and get more into line. It seems to me that you you know you have to ask the question why should the Fed stop now when the core PC is 4.6 percent, uh, more than double the Fed's target. The labour market is tight. The U.S. economy is still going pretty well, isn't it? It hasn't fallen into recession as lots of people um, sort of feared. So it almost begs the question why stop now and risk maybe, particularly when commodity prices are going up again, that inflation could suddenly spike higher. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, I agree with Andrew. I think they will leave the door open for a September rate hike. Um, the Fed does target core, um, core PCE, um, but they have uh, said that they uh, are seeing some signs of um, downside pressures on the services front. Um, and the labor market is sort of, you know, we're getting mixed signals from the labor market at, at, at the moment. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's... Um, it's wait and see for them. They want they want to believe that the cumulative impact of uh, 525 basis, basis point hikes uh, since the beginning of the tightening cycle will have a material impact on, on demand. And we are seeing already it moving through sectors of the U.S. economy, for example, housing and, of course, the U.S. banks earlier this year. Um, so they want to believe that the next uh, sector is, is consumption and, and then through that employment. Um, but they will 100% leave the door open for, for a September 8 uh, hike. So we won't have the sort of certainty that some market practitioners are hoping mm. for. There is an opposing point of view to what you're saying, which goes something like this. That is that if the Fed is going to really be rooted to this 2% price target, we're going to have to go through a lot of economic pain to get there. And is it really worth um, raising interest rates as much as it would need to get inflation down to 2%? Wouldn't it be better if the Fed maybe learned to live with a higher rate of inflation, like 3%, so we don't have to go through that pain? What do you say to that? Two things. First of all, we're we're going into an election year, surprise, surprise. So I think that there will be, whether we like it or not, there's just like the Supreme Court is no longer independent, the Fed cannot really be as independent as we'd like to think. So I think that's going to play a major role going next year. And I think that's might then make the Fed be a little bit more lenient, not sort of rigidly sticking to the 2%. I've always seen it more as a guidance figure as opposed to an absolute rigid 
until it hits too, because if you can you can fiddle the methodology on this core PCE, as Carlos elegantly calls it, and then of course you could get down to two percent. So I think that it's more of a guidance figure. But again, going into the election year, I don't think they're going to be doing much tightening next year. Myself, mm. we, we are regarding the two versus three percent. I think currently we are part of the three percent camp. Um, but of course, a lot of that depends on on how things uh, pan out and and what the what the rhetoric coming out of the FOMC is this week. And finally, then, tell me a bit about the Bank of Japan. They're meeting as well, aren't they? Now, they don't look like they're going to be tightening policy um, at all. There was some hope at one stage that maybe there might be an adjustment uh, to the yield control policy. But Governor Ueda seems to have really knocked that nail firmly on the head, doesn't he? Hmm. Yes, FX traders did get ahead of themselves a little bit there. Um, um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> for being a little cheeky this morning, <laughs> but the conditions for the Bank of Japan to Hello, um, change their um, um, policy settings, you know, ahead of the conclusion of the policy review. Remember that Bank of Japan gave investors a very, very broad uh, one-year time frame. They said we are doing a policy review and we're not going to change anything until after we've done the policy review. Um, so the conditions for them to do something in, in the middle are just not there yet. Inflation um, has shown signs of peaking, uh, with core inflation in Japan actually decreasing in June. Um, and 10-year um, government bond yields uh, declined to 0.44%. So mm. what we saw last year with like consistently being at the upper end of the band um, and J Bank of Japan having to intervene heavily in the market, those conditions haven't been met yet. It is possible that we will get there in the fourth quarter, so I don't exclude the possibility of them moving on their yield curve control target. Uh, but unfortunately, July is just not the time for it. I'm also afraid that in Japan, the camel has three humps, not two. We're, calling about, we're talking about, about Japanese consensus. So if you think it's, it's, it's already rough in China, try, try Japan. Mm -hmm. In my years of doing it, yeah. I mean, if you look at what they call the, the core core inflation rate, it's above 4% now, yes. isn't it? At 40, 41 year high. Higher than Americas, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, the, that's odd, isn't it? Yeah, inflation yeah. in Japan, we, we, we haven't seen this for a while, well, higher yeah. than the inflation well, in the US. We've seen it in 2016 when they increased the, the tax. Um, so they are not convinced that this is sustainable, and they are already seeing that core core number going down. So they, they are in a wait and see mode, and Bank of Japan will take their sweet time. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> Great. It takes time, well, yes. Thank you very much. Great conversation there this morning. Well, lovely to see you both. You heard Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP, and also Enzio von Fahl, our regular Wednesday commentator, founder of Financial Shield. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute in Tokyo. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So it's a, a big week, isn't it, for the Bank of Japan, one of the three major uh, central banks that's, uh, that's meeting this week, along with the Fed, of course, and the ECB. We pretty well know what the Fed and the ECB are going to do. Do we know what the Bank of Japan is going to do? Yes, it's, it's a very good question. As, as you say, it's a big week for central banks this week. Um, in the case of the Bank of Japan, I think um, it's... A little bit unclear as to what exactly will happen. Um, there are some um, market participants indicating that there could be a tweak in the yield curve control policy, um, whilst other uh, market participants believe that something might happen later in the year in this respect. Of course, inflation in Japan is something that has remained persistent throughout the year, but the, the, the question remains as to whether this is at a sustainable level. And this is something that 
the Bank of Japan will be taking into consideration when it decides on um, whether to implement any change in its in its policy. So if the Bank of Japan is waiting to see inflation at what it calls a sustainable level, um, as opposed to the level it's at right now, how, how will it know? How will it know when it's got there and when inflation is sustainable and then it needs to start doing something? Well, I think it's a very difficult uh, proposition. I think that um, one of the key factors will be whether we can see um, some pickup in underlying inflation and whether we can see some rise in real wages throughout the course of this year. Um, Of course, you know, the real wage situation is something that is an important determining factor. Um, We currently have nominal wages below uh, the level of inflation at the moment. Um, And there are still concerns about um, whether domestic demand is sufficient um, in order to drive the economy going forward. Of course, in the case of Japan, I think um, one of the concerns is on the external environment. Um, So in a scenario where there would be a sharp downturn in the global economy, this would really um, impact Japan. Um, And this is one of the other reasons why there's some perhaps reluctance to um, end the accommodative stance that we see that has been in place for a very long time, of course. The the thing is, though, if you look at the numbers, I mean, inflation in Japan is now higher than the US. Uh, The the headline inflation hit 3.3%. If you look at the core, core um, inflation, which excludes energy and food prices, that's 4.2%. It's uh, uh, um, the highest since June 1981. But yet the Bank of Japan doesn't seem to think that it's it's high enough. Isn't it a, a bit odd? Yes, it's it is a bit odd. One could one could say that. Um, I think the real concern is that, um, of course, this rate of inflation that you're referring to is a year-on-year calculation, and I think that as prices may dissipate um, in terms of um, you know commodity prices and the pass-through of those commodity prices, even to the core core measure that you're talking about. These could dissipate over the course of 2023 this year. And I mean, that's why there's some uncertainty on on the inflation outlook. Um, Of course, the Bank of Japan is very wary about prematurely uh, bringing in some form of monetary policy tightening for the exact reason that it has concerns about the outlook for the global economy. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that respect, I think that... um, some caution is is being undertaken by the Bank of Japan at this juncture. So will it be influenced by the IMF today revising upwards its forecast for the global economy? Well, I think, of course, the, the IMF released its WIO yesterday and it, it had some upward global uh, growth revision, but it had a downward growth revision for Japan mm-hmm. uh, slightly um, for 2023 and 2024. So, you know, I think it's difficult to to read very closely into the overall global uh revision um without looking at the the specific um relationship vis-a-vis trade with japan um so i think there are also some um you know um uncertainty around those uh, baseline uh projections of course um but i think um of course 
these will will play into the considerations being uh, looked at by the Bank of Japan. Of I mean, course, I mean, you've also when when you look at inflation, you've got to really look at wages as well, Hamzid. And we've had that mm. that Shunto uh, sort of wage hike. Will that feed through uh, into inflation and, and make inflation more persistent? And then conversely, if it doesn't, it's a bit disastrous, isn't it, to go and jack up inflation without getting wages up at the same time? That's not going to be very good for the general public. Yeah, well, of course, that's the um, rationale for the big push towards uh, increasing nominal wages in Japan in order to stimulate domestic demand-driven inflation because the scene uh, to date in Japan has primarily been cost-push inflation. Um, Mm -hmm. And the the drive by government, of course, is to have more domestic demand-driven inflation underpinned by rises in, in nominal wages. Now, to date, we have seen some increases in nominal wages, but it it's still not sufficient to outstrip the level of inflation. Mm. Over the course of 2023 and into 2024, it remains uncertain on the, on the extent to which nominal wage rises will uh, be persistent. And, you know, there are still a lot of uncertainties in, in this regard, I would say. It, what what do you think is the part because i'm hearing several analysts say this now that the fact is that the bank of japan has just got it completely wrong um it's making the same mistake that the fed made um, you know a couple of years ago when it started to see uh inflation tick up and and decided it wasn't sustainable that it was transitory was the word that they used at the time only to to basically be very wrong and have to really slam on the brakes then to try and get inflation um under control what, what do you think is the risk that we're just seeing the same thing happen here in japan yeah, I think that that's a qu- quite a harsh criticism. I think in the case of the Fed in particular, um, when it was accused of, um, you know, saying that inflation was transitory, of course, at that time, um, the economy in the US was coming out of the pandemic and nobody could have predicted that there would be um, further pressures on prices coming from the war situation uh, in Ukraine, which basically meant that the inflation was not transitory. So. In a scenario where there would be no war, perhaps that inflation would have been transitory. Um, so I think, you know, there are a lot of uncertainties, um, which are, of course, in hindsight, 2020. Um, I think the Bank of Japan currently is looking at the data that's available. Uh, it is clear that there are uncertainties around the inflation outlook, um, which would imply that caution is needed on any change in policy. As I said, the, the outlook for the global economy will be uh, a very important factor being taken into account uh, by the Bank of Japan. And um, this may really um, tip the, the, the balance in the decision towards uh, a more cautious approach. And um, maybe we, w- we will not see any tweak in the yield curve control uh, policy this time, but we could see something in future in future meetings. And in fact, it will be something that will be looked at in subsequent meetings for the rest of the year. Is the Bank of Japan willing to tolerate the weaker yen if it doesn't uh, do anything? Because it, without sort of announcing some sort of change to yield curve control, um, the, the, the yen's just going to continue sliding, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So during the lot, July, we've seen a continued weakness of the yen, and that's only going to get worse, let's say, if we see uh, the, the Fed hiking and, and the, the, the Bank of Japan remaining unchanged. 
Um, so some weakness in the end will uh, materialize as a result of that. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the level of the yen is currently at around 142. Uh, there's some volatility around that level as well. And I think um, in recent months, we've seen that this level of yen has helped to, to stimulate inward investment into Japan. Um, it remains to be seen whether, of course, volatility in that level of the yen could have negative implications for uh, levels of investments that we, we we may see. But I think that at the current level, it's, it's probably not concerning. I think we saw that um, back in November, December last year, there was an intervention at around the 150 level. So we're still a far uh, level mm. in terms of uh, concerns. And, and what about the global implications of what uh, the Bank of Japan does this week? Because obviously we've we got three major central banks meeting. We're sort of looking at them slightly in the round, aren't we, in terms of how they impact each other. But what's uh, the global impact of the Bank of Japan basically sitting tight while the Fed and the ECB are raising rates? Yeah, well, there will be clear global implications, uh, given that we will see uh, widening in the yield differential between Japan and other parts of uh, advanced economies. Um, and this can trigger some capital flow uh, volatility. It can tr trigger capital flows out of Japan, for example, which would have a lower uh, yield compared to other advanced economies. Um, and there are also f fiscal implications as well that need to be taken into account. And um, I think, you know, the real... Uh, consideration to bear in mind will be how investors view the outlook for the global economy. Mm -hmm. and, and that will be a real factor which will be uh, driving capital flows in emerging markets and other parts of Asia and other parts of, of the global economy as well. So I think that will be a key factor going forward on, on how we see the trajectory of, of the global economy in terms of growth um, and in terms of the implications of that growth for the prices that we see in asset asset markets in these uh, different regions. Well, it's going to be a very interesting week. Starts with the Fed tonight. We'll hear from the ECB tomorrow and then the Bank of Japan on Friday. John, thank you very much indeed for your analysis of that. Thank you, Peter. That's John Byrne, who is Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute over in Tokyo. <laughs> Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with the show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guest will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and from the USA, Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.